Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Elizabeth Krupinski, who is Professor and Vice Chair of Research at Emory University in the Department of Radiology. Her interests are in medical image perception, observer performance, decision-making, and human factors. She is Associate Director of Evaluation for the Arizona Telemedicine Program and Co-Director of the Southwest Telehealth Resource Center. He is also the co-editor of the Journal of Telemedicine and Telecare and editor of Telemedicine Reports. Uh, welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. Sure, yeah. So, so you have been researching uh, and contributing to making uh, telemedicine more broadly adopted for, for a long time. I want to set the stage with some definitions uh, and perhaps use one of your research papers to start with. So uh, it's entitled Clinical Examination Component of Telemedicine, Telehealth, M-Health, and Connected Health Medical Practices. Um, and so telemedicine and telehealth in general are practices of medicine at a distance. Uh, you say components of a more traditional clinical examination are part of the telemedicine workup for specific conditions. Uh, what are some of these components and what are some of the technologies that we use for this now? Yeah, so I mean, obviously you cannot do the same sort of physical exam virtually as you would in person. Um, so there, there are some limitations, but there, there is an awful lot that you can do. And a lot of it depends on the sort of the setting that you're doing telehealth in. Uh, so for example, you've got to separate out the provider to provider type of telemedicine where, for example, the patient goes to a clinic in their say remote area, wherever they are. And at that site is perhaps a nurse practitioner, an APP, or even you know, a physician who's a general, a general practitioner. And then at the connecting site where the consultant is, you have either a subspecialist or for example, if it's an NP or APP or RN or whatever at the site with the patient, you've yeah. got perhaps an MD or a DO at that other site. Now in those situations, it's a lot easier 
to carry out a more traditional um, physical examination because you have a healthcare provider right. um, at that other site. And so they could, for example, take blood pressure, uh, pulse, they could help with a uh, physical exam, getting uh, chest sounds using an electronic stethoscope. Um, they could, for example, use um, uh, an electronic uh, or, or a camera attached to an otoscope, and you could look into the ear at the eardrum if the patient is, is having ear pain or down the throat or whatever. So in that situation, a lot of the components and the specialist at the consulting site simply that yes. other healthcare provider to collect the information that they're after. Now, when it gets more difficult is when the patient is in their home. Right. Um, obviously, patients are not going to have any of the equipment um, that a, a healthcare provider would. However, um, there are things that the patient can do. The patient could obviously, uh, in all likelihood, has a thermometer, so it could take their temperature. Um, a physician could direct the patient on how to get their pulse. Yep. Um, could, if the patient has a home blood pressure unit, uh, direct them through that if they don't know how to use it. Uh, there's information that you can get from a lot of apps these days, uh, simply utilizing your, your smartphone. Right. Uh, there are electronic scales, uh, Bluetooth connected types of devices that the patient could have in their house, or if they are an existing patient, perhaps they have been sent these devices or prescribed the devices almost, and uh, uh, the healthcare organization or provider could have loaned them or given them to the patient, and the patient simply has to, you know, step on the Bluetooth scale, and that information is uploaded to the web uh, through a patient portal or or one of these online um, platforms that are used in telemedicine, and the provider could get them that way. Obviously, things like, uh, you know, utilizing an electronic stethoscope on yourself as a patient yes. is, is much more difficult. Right. But uh, as I said, there are increasingly apps and technologies that can either be provided to the patient or the patient may already have that makes a number of the core components of a physical exam feasible. Right. A lot, again, will depend on that patient. Um, yes. It does sometimes help to have somebody else in the room especially if you're dealing with a patient with a chronic condition who uh, may or not be capable of doing some of these things, an older patient perhaps, a pediatric patient, um, would obviously need a caretaker or a guardian of some sort to help with these things. Right, yeah, so the, the, the first uh, modality where the expert is sort of a hub and spoke system, right? The expert is at the hub and either a nurse or a, a consultant is with the patient in, in different locations uh, and, and making that connection. When the patient is at home, like you say, it's much more challenging, but we have enough technologies, right? We have sort of the home health um, a set of technologies that are rapidly developing. And so even without the patient knowing, I would imagine in the future, uh, the, the physician uh, would be able to pick up a lot of the information uh, just uh, electronically. Well, I hope with the patient knowing, yeah. yes, because we do yeah, want to yeah. have big brother right. and these, uh, you know, hidden devices. But yes, I mean, they, they, they would be able to be a lot more automatic uh, for the patient in the house. And there, there are uh, systems now, like I said, that, that you can 
the provider could we, we call them suitcases sometimes and you know it's a it's a, 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 a literally a suitcase with a number of these devices in yeah. them uh, that is sent to the patient in their home for them to use uh, quite often someone will go in and help them you know understand how to use them and so on and then after that uh, they connect usually through these systems or, or as, as uh, systems on the side and can very readily communicate with the provider and send blood pressure, pulse, um, uh, pulse oximetry, yes. uh, quite often spirometer. I mean, there's a lot of these tools that are, that are very easy to use or increasingly easy to use um, by the, you know, the patient themselves. Yeah, so as we get more adoption here, we're getting more data. So you have a paper, the empirical foundations of telemedicine uh, interventions and in primary care uh, this, I guess, is uh, uh, becoming more relevant um, in the pandemic as well. So you say, although there is no uniform and consistent definition of primary care, most likely that it occupies a central role in the healthcare system, uh, it enables and supports patient-centered care, the medical home, managed care, and so on, population health. Uh, and uh, we, we increasingly have shortages of primary care physicians, right, all, all around the world, not only in the United States, but all around the world. And so telemedicine, you know, it used to be sort of an experiment, I guess, um, some time ago, but it's almost becoming a necessity in many cases, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the, it, it's kind of, ironic that it took a worldwide pandemic to get people to suddenly all of a sudden see the value of telemedicine even though literally it's been around for well over 30 yeah. years uh and those of us who are in the field have been in you know fighting for at least that long to to get people to accept it and get reimbursement codes etc um but yeah you're right absolutely it, it it has absolutely exploded during covid and people are realizing the benefits of it um, I do want to put a caveat on that um, because, you know, a lot of the, the, the ways that telemedicine is being done now is a result of waivers that were put in place here in the United States and other countries um, that made the delivery of telehealth and connecting patients with providers a lot easier. Mm -hmm. For example, waiving some of the HIPAA regulations uh, waiving with respect to the types of devices and communication tools that people could use. So as we, um, those waivers expire and as we quote unquote, go back to normal, yeah. you know, some of these waivers are not gonna be in place and people are going to have to adjust and upgrade the technology and the tools that they were using to adhere to, you know, various regulations. Um, but I, I think we're gonna be able to deal with that. And, you know, some waivers are just, just gonna expire. Some of them are gonna be continued uh, and hopefully uh, regulatory bodies and uh, reimbursement agencies will actually leave a lot of this in place is what we're hoping. So telemedicine can proceed, yeah. um, you know, certain ones like, you know, prescribing laws and narcotics and cetera, those are gonna go back to normal. A lot of the HIPAA restrictions and, and the similar in other countries are gonna go back to what they were to some extent. Um, you're no longer gonna be able to use FaceTime or Skype, for example, you know, these non-HIPAA compliant platforms. Um, so people are going to have to adjust in that sense. Right. Um, but like I said, I think I think that, you know, the, the cat is out of the bag on this. Yeah. Thing. I also wondered, Elizabeth, I want to get your perspective on this. Is primary care settings more challenging uh, for 
telemedicine because you know you could have a large variety of you know that the patient could present with a large variety of symptoms and and diseases and to the extent that you don't have home based technologies yet and you are really diagnosing and i am talking about the second modality that you described where the patient is calling from home and you really really diagnosing based on observational characteristics uh, does the primary care setting make it more difficult to do i don't know if it makes it more difficult i, I you know i think every clinical specialty has its own uh challenges associated yeah. with it um you know primary care uh you know I, i think some of the challenges there are it is sort of that first line and so you know a patient coming in with a new set of uh symptoms or conditions uh that that has not been diagnosed previously yeah. um you know there's only so much you can describe in a situation with telemedicine i mean at some point you've got to get the blood work you've got to get the urinalysis you you probably got to get you know imaging yes. so at some point yes the patient's going to have to go in uh and and be seen in person but i think you know a lot of the describing of the symptoms a lot of some of the early information can clearly narrow down the range of possibilities uh, as it would in an in person visit when the patient is just sitting there describing you know what they're feeling and what their symptoms yes. are um and and just like in person then you know the the further set of uh tests are going to have to be done uh you know i think the the limitation is that you know this is okay and uh, is probably going to be a lot closer to what happens in the clinic when it's it's more of a, a complex condition a chronic condition or something that absolutely requires uh, more tests and information to really narrow down and confirm what it is when you're dealing with some of the more i don't want to say common but i mean some of the common things like earaches yeah. uti um you know in a lot of cases the physician obviously gets what the patient has um and especially if the patient has had it before but it would be ideal obviously if they could look into the patient's ear because you don't want right. to prescribe you know to a to an 8 year old you know a bunch of uh you know antibiotics if it really isn't an earache that 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 can be treated with that and so you you do want to have that little bit of more information yeah. but like i said there are increasingly things that you can you know attach to your iphone that allows some of these images actually to be acquired um you know there's certain ones that are being uh, developed to do eye exams yeah. literally you know with your iphone um so i think that you know in some cases it it's just different challenges different, yeah. so no i don't think it's more of a challenge i just think they're different you know if i'm going to be going to a radiation oncologist yes. i'm not going to be doing that just for the fun of it i'm going to be doing that because i am known to have say cancer and i've already gone through all those preliminary things and i'm going to the radiation oncologist not for diagnosis but for treatment and yes for the treatment per se i have to go in but a lot of that that preparation and follow up can be done via telemedicine So in that sense it's a little bit more um protocol driven in yeah. a sense than primary care where you're faced with a host of things that quite often needs these ancillary tests and so on to really be clear of what the diagnostic uh op, uh differentials are and what the options would be to treat. Yeah, so a little bit more uncertainty so I wondered you know specialty area like dermatology for example so teledermatology where 
you could, you know, observations uh, is a big part of the diagnostics. Um, is that is that so? From an adoption perspective, where do you see more adoption happening in more specialized arenas or in primary care? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, to date, it has been a little bit more in the in the subspecialties um, because I think, as I said, each one is so uh, unique that it the the within the specialties it has kind of evolved, uh, and primary care to some extent has been a little bit more of a challenge, like I, for the reasons I stated before. Yeah. Um, I think now, um, as a result of COVID. Uh, I think primary care has probably caught up a lot with a lot of the other specialties yeah, yeah. in terms of what's being done. And in the future, as we proceed, I think what we're going to find is a lot of work being done in primary care to now we understand a little bit better what some of the challenges really are and what innovative solutions people have come up with right. to address those challenges. Uh, you know, it's kind of scary to think, but I mean, we've been doing COVID now for almost six mm -hmm. months. There's been a ton of innovation and it's going to continue. And there are, are providers, there are PhDs, there are companies out there that are listening to what's going on, watching going on and saying, you know, hey, we've heard that this is a problem. They go off and address yeah, it. Yeah. And, and you have another paper, which is in a slightly different area. So best practices in video conferencing based tele-mental health, where you say the form of interactive video conferencing has become a critical tool in the delivery of mental health care, care, and you say it has demonstrated the ability to increase access to the quality of care, and in some settings, to do so more effectively than treatment delivered in person. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, behavioral and mental health is, is and has been for a number of years, like one of the primary uh, examples of what can be done with, with, with telehealth. It is, is very amenable to it. I mean, if you think of what uh, a lot of uh, diagnosis and treatment is in mental health. It's talking with the patient. There are tests that are done, but those are usually uh, uh, sometimes imaging, so that that certainly still has to be done. Um, but there are a lot of um, uh, tests that are either orally or, or, or written given, and you can do a lot of that online. And a lot of it is sort of the talk yeah. of telepsychiatry, telepsychology, you know, social work, and so on. So it is very amenable to telehealth. And there are some instances, yes, where uh, having that remoteness between the patient and the provider actually yeah. helps. Um, there are some patients, you know, just example, an agoraphobic, hmm. you know, who's terrified of leaving their house. Well, they're terrified of leaving their house. So getting them to go to their provider in person, it can be a challenge. Yet doing it virtually, they don't have to leave their right. house. Right. Um, there are circumstances with victims of abuse mm. um, where having that distance, that physical distance between the provider and the patient is a benefit. Right. Um, right. There are certain patients who you might not want to do. If a patient is uh, actively hallucinating or, you know, actively in, in a state where they you know, they believe that their computer is watching over <laughs> them and the aliens are coming after them. You know, you hook up with your provider by the computer, they might not really be amenable to, to doing that. They may actually incorporate that into their 
um, their their mental framework and so on. Yeah, and in some cases, uh, uh, Elizabeth, it's also the the timing of the intervention could be also critical, right? You think about uh, suicidal uh, type issues that if you can actually reach the patient a lot faster remotely, that might be very beneficial. Absolutely, absolutely. And with any, you know, in any circumstance where the patient is going to decompose, um, whether it's, a, you know, a mental uh, problem or, you know, a cardiac problem, I mean, there's a lot of technologies that, that can be used to help monitor these patients. Um, you know, there's apps uh, that have been developed, for example, by the VA that keep track of, you know, patients' mental states, physical states, and so on, and they can send out uh, alarms. Yeah that tell the provider, hey, you know, there's something going on with this patient. Uh, you know, for example, there's, um, you know, uh, apps, assuming that the patient has their phone with them, or even sensors that can be put on the body that, that indicate when the patient's moving, when they're getting up, getting out of bed, and so on. So if you've got a patient with a, with a mental or behavioral uh, health problem, and you're monitoring their activity and you note that you know for the past 72 hours this person has done nothing but get up and go to the bathroom that might be a sign that you know it's time to reach out because that person is basically sitting in bed all day and that is not healthy um so yeah they're combining sort of this remote monitoring technology with the the telemedicine interventions and ability to connect absolutely there are ways that we can uh, intervene a lot earlier and potentially prevent admissions to the hospitals, readmissions, relapses, and so on. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. You know, um, long time ago, it used to be that the the physician went to the patient, right? Uh, yeah. And uh, you know, uh, nowadays it's the, it's it's always the other way around. Uh, but it seems like we are coming a full circle around that, <laughs> which is now the, the physician yeah. uh, knows when an intervention might be optimum. And uh, and without the patient uh, taking an action, uh, could intervene at the right time uh, with this type of technology. No, that is absolutely yeah. correct. I want to just uh, go into another idea. So you have a paper, Detection of Breast Cancer with Mammography, effect of an AI artificial intelligence support system uh, where you compared breast cancer detection performance of radiologists uh, uh, reading the re- reading the mammographs uh, uh, compared to what an AI artificial intelligence system would do. Uh, what did you find in terms of um, reliability and, and the usefulness? It wasn't quite comparing the radiologist to the AI. Yes. It was actually a type of uh, artificial intelligence where what the what the mammographer was able to do is they they would bring up the the case, the four images uh, that are typical of a mammogram, yeah. uh, sort of the the two the two views and the two breasts. So you have four images. And they could then read the images uh, because, in my opinion, and the opinion of a lot of people, including the FDA, the radiologist should always look at the images first without any decision information from any computer system, whether it's computer-aided detection to, or discrimination or any of these AI yeah. tools. So you look at it. And this particular scheme that I was uh, 
the company that I was working with on this one, basically what it allowed the radiologist to do was two things. One, they could either just click a button and the AI prompts or cues would come up on the uh, right on the images and say, you know, it would indicate where the computer thought a mass and or microcalcification okay. was. The radiologist, could you do that? Or they could also just look at the image and point with the cursor and click and say, okay, AI, what do you think is happening right, here? Right. And the AI could come back and, you know, you know, zero percent or oh, okay, there's a twenty percent. And so we were not really looking at the performance of the AI. We were looking at the performance of the radiologist in a sense with and without the AI. So we had to make an initial decision without the AI. Okay, now go ahead and access and see if that changes your decision. Right. Yeah. And and what was the what was the conclusion when uh, AI aided a radiologist in that job? Uh, was was there an improvement? Yeah, I mean, overall, we saw that there was some uh, increase in performance. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, the tools that are developed and, and, and you know, the using computers to help uh, diagnose images, especially in mammography, is not new. Uh, we didn't used to call it AI. We used to call it computer-aided detection and diagnosis. Um, and that's been around for almost 20 years, actually. And it was actually a lot of the early schemes um, that were developed by some of these companies are already being used. They're FDA approved, yes. these older computer aided detection, and, and they actually get reimbursed for using them. Um, it, a lot depends. So, and, and it's being seen in AI as well is, you know, a lot depends on the experience of the radiologist. Yes. So, uh, 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 a resident, a fellow, someone who has been, uh, you know, practicing for only a few years, quite often benefits mm. more from the AI input than a well-experienced mammographer or other type of radiologist, depending on, you know, what types of images they're reading. Um, sometimes it depends on the setting where the radiologist is. So an academic radiologist may not be impacted as much as a general radiologist. Uh, you know, a general radiologist reading all sorts of images may benefit, is often found to benefit more from computer-aided tools mm. and decision tools. Um, so it, it just varies, but overall, it does seem, um, at least with the scheme that I was using, uh, that the radiologists were actually, uh, their decisions uh, benefited from the input of the AI, and it didn't take excessively much longer for them to access and utilize that information. Okay. So it, it fit into the workflow. Yeah, but did you find, I don't know if you measured this, Elizabeth, but did you find any difference between experienced radiologists and and those, you know, who are just getting into the business? Uh, I see two things there. One is experience, of course, and the other is uh, perhaps the younger radiologists are also uh, potentially more comfortable with this type of technology too, right? I was just wondering if you picked up anything. Um, you know, these days, I think all radiologists are very comfortable with technology. I mean, we've been using PACs, you know, digital technologies, workstations for, you know, gosh, 30 yeah. years. Um, so, you know, those and, and there's even, you know, a lot of the older radiologists that are that are still using that, that did learn on film right. uh, and were using film for part of their career. They're all using digital now and have been for any number of years. 
Um, so in the early days, I mean, some of the early studies I did back in the early 1990s in radiology and actually in pathology showed just mm. that, that some of the older radiologists actually did better with film or light microscopy than they did with digital radiology or digital pathology, and the younger ones did better in the digital formats. Um, by the end of the 90s, that was just gone. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the, the digital skills of even, you know, the older, more experienced radiologists were the same as the, the younger radiologists. In terms of the acceptance of AI as a generational thing, um, you know, it, it's different. I, I, don't, I don't think we know enough yeah. now, but I know there's enough of the younger radiologists who are just as um, cautious mm. about the utilization of AI. There, I mean, there's so many things about AI and its implementations um, that just we just don't know enough right. about uh, generalizability, the biases that are inherent in the AI. Right. Um, just so many things, you know, just generalizing from one institution to another, yeah. utilizing different types of equipment. Uh, you know, if, if the AI is trained on X company's images and then you try to do it on Y company, the results change. Uh, different populations of patients. If I do it, you know, in, in the middle of Iowa on those types of mm -hmm. patients, then compare that to, say, Northern California. Wow. All of a sudden, the, the, the algorithm doesn't perform yes. as well. So a lot. We just don't know enough now uh, to say how effective it really is going to be in the long run. Right, right. Yeah, so technology has to improve there. Uh, there is also uh, potentially as we go forward, there could be data coming from different avenues. And, you know, we see humans are not really very good when there is a lot of different types of data. Uh, to combine that to make a decision, you you have a you have a paper not on that particular topic but something related uh, impact of patient uh, photographs on detection accuracy, uh, decision confidence and eye tracking parameters in chest and abdomen images with tubes and lines. So this is this is um, a physician actually using multiple types of images to make a decision. Yes, actually. So you've you've got your uh, this is in radiology, yeah. and what what we did was uh, 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 one of my colleagues, Shrinitran Danapani. He's a, an MD PhD um, who was formerly at Emory. He developed this system where, as the patient is having their image acquired, and this is primarily with the traditional film images. Although he, the goal is to expand it for example, to CT, to MRI, and so on. But as the patient is getting their images acquired, say, for example, a chest x-ray, um, it would simultaneously acquire a photograph of them. Yeah. And so if, if you think of uh, a, a patient in the hospital, they have all these, you know, they have feeding tubes, they have breathing tubes, they have all these monitor wires going all over them and so mm. on. And all that stuff appears on the x-ray. Interesting, yeah. But, but the problem is the patient and all these tubes and things, they're, they're three-dimensional objects. Right. When you get the x-ray image, it's a two-dimensional image. Mm. They, these are not volumetric like a CT or an MRI. Right. So quite often it's difficult to say, is, is that piece of wire or tubing inside or outside the patient. <laughs> right. And, and, and it, sometimes it's very difficult to yeah. tell. 
and you know they have to follow the lines and you know look at the image and try to make their decision the idea behind the photographs is now i have a photograph showing the patient mm. and there's the tubes there's the lines oh they're outside they're sitting on the patient outside oh that feeding tube is there yes it actually is you know inserted uh you know into the patient so the 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 goal of the photographs yes was to be able to use these different sources of information uh to make these decisions um as well as in uh another situation is to uh, uh make sure you've got the right patient mm. you know sometimes when when you acquire an image you know somebody inputting the information could make a mistake and enter the wrong digit yeah. and all of a sudden in the system it says this is mr smith but in reality it was mrs jones <laughs> right and so you you've got this image that's obviously of a woman mm. but you're looking at the information and saying well now it says it's mr smith let me look at the patient photograph <laughs> ah okay yes this must be in the system incorrectly let me you know try to get this solved and you know get it in the system correctly so it, it helps in that sense as well it also helps in uh when you've got right left errors right so right. for example it, it might say you know uh you know the patient has a uh, um you know fell down and their left leg hurts and yet you're looking at the patient image and clearly it's their right leg that's that's full of blood and the bone sticking out so it was a, a mislabeled image in terms of left right side so there's a lot of uses of these images um we we have it here at emory uh he moved to another institution they're using it there and a couple other pilot sites uh the goal really is to try to promote this so more and more institutions use it because the more information you have the more valuable it is right right yeah you say that if the photograph is large enough it it just takes an average of 3 extra seconds to view compared to the radiograph alone but it adds significant confidence to decisions so that that's right. significant yeah no okay. and and that particular study what we were looking at is you know the the radiologists are looking at these images on computer workstations and computer monitors and you know it's it's like real estate location 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 you've got to have All, we're adding a piece of information a new image um to what the radiologist has available and so the the question is how big should that image be so we use kind of a large medium small you know the three bears and goldilocks yeah. um and we track their eye motions to see how often they looked at the images how long they spent and so on and there was a, an optimal image size where they were able to get the information in a quick and efficient manner those 3 seconds and at the same time that information was valuable and helped uh, uh raise their confidence in their decisions whereas the smaller image or if the image was too big taking up too much information too much of the real estate it interfered with the the chest x-ray itself and you know so there was an optimal optimal size that we had yeah yeah I want to get into you have a group of papers Elizabeth that relates to fatigue uh ergonomics you know things like that right so the first one is the impact of fatigue on complex ct case interpretation by radiology residents um you're looking at how fatigue affects um the the reading right of of radiology residents yep. and what did you find there 
Um, well, th th that's actually our latest study in a series of quite a few studies that uh, I've been looking at this for about 12 years yeah. now. And uh, early on, uh, when we started out doing this, uh, you know, the first, how I kind of got into it all was, you know, I would do eye tracking studies for a variety of purposes. And sometimes I'd have radiologists come in after lunch or late afternoon, and I was finding it was very difficult to track their eyes. And I'm sitting there, well, what, you know, what's going mm -hmm. on? And, and it's because they were, you know, they were tired. And so their eyes were kind of, you know, closing too yeah. much and you can't record somebody's eye position if their <laughs> eyes are closed and so you know i started to think wow i mean they're 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 tired they're working a lot and you know when i talked to them they said yeah i mean you know it's, it's complex it's hard uh reading is is difficult it takes a lot of time and yeah it is fatiguing and so i said well, okay let's find out is this an important phenomena can we measure it and does it impact performance yeah. And so we early on found ways to objectively measure fatigue. And then we started to do the studies on does fatigue impact diagnostic accuracy as well as time to interpret images. And in the early studies, I used both radiologists and residents. Yeah. And for both of them, yes, we found significant decreases in diagnostic accuracy as a function of the number of hours they had read prior. So first thing in the morning when they were fresh, having read, you know, no images, performance was significantly better than reading late in the afternoon after having spent a whole day in front of a computer reading images. And it was about, that's about a 5% difference in performance on average in accuracy. And it was in both false negatives and false positives. Yeah. In other words, the number of false negatives increased, so they were missing more lesions, and the number of false positives mm. increased. They were making more false alarms. Right. And overall, it impacted experienced radiologists as well as fe fellows in residence, but surprisingly, the fellows in residence were often more impacted than the older, more experienced radiologists. Mm. And when we went into this, we were all thinking, you know, it's going to be the older ones who are impacted more. And then it was the younger ones. And we're like, huh, <laughs> you know, what's going on? And what we what we kind of figured out by talking to, to them and to radiologists is that being a trainee is incredibly difficult. Yeah. It's exhausting. And they're actually more fatigued overall than the radiologist simply because of, you know, the stress of being a trainee, the difficulty, the learning experience and so on. And so in this final study that we did with the CT, we only used the residents. Mm -hmm. And again, we found um, that, that uh, diagnostic accuracy and efficiency, uh, the speed with which they in look at a, a, a given case or image and make a decision, both of those are negatively impacted uh, as a function of fatigue. And uh, just as for my understanding, Elizabeth, you said that the younger ones uh, show uh, lower uh, numbers say both efficiency and efficacy. So as they as they uh, the first year residents are worse compared to the last year residents. Uh, in this study, we didn't use okay. first years because it was CT and they they don't really do a lot of independent reading. But we did have the the the, the third and fourth year residents typically are more efficient and make fewer okay. mistakes than the second years. Uh, and I'm sure if we actually did the first years 
Uh, we have done first years in other studies. And yes, typically, as you get go through residency from first to, to your fourth year, you do become less impacted mm. uh, by fatigue and you're making less errors overall. Mm. Um, but the fatigue still makes you make errors. But as you, as you get better, see, the thing is with, with experience, you know, just in general, you're better at reading yeah. images. But I think you also learn the tricks of the yeah. trade. You also learn the signs of, of fatigue. You understand your limitations mm. better. Um, and you also, as you then go into real practice as a practicing, you know, board certified radiologist, you know, you learn to hit, you know, when you hit that wall, you get that second wind. Right. And they learn how to a recognize that they're fatigued and then how to you know let's you know i got one more hour i got these more cases here i gotta pump myself up let me move around a little bit grab a cup of coffee here i go i'm ready so they learn ways to overcome that fatigue um at some point it catches up i mean you you, you know you can't read 15 16 hours a day and not expect fatigue to have an impact but i think in that time range of you know eight eight to ten eight to twelve hours there you can get that second wind and then beyond that, I, I think everybody is going to be impacted. Yeah, so, so you have a related paper here, the impact of fatigue on satisfaction of search in chest radiography. And uh, I guess the satisfaction of search, this is uh, getting into the process, right? So you are reaching a conclusion um, a lot faster and, and making errors in that way. Um, no, satisfaction of search is, it's a phenomena yeah. where when there's multiple findings in a case, mm. you find one yeah. and then you miss the other one or ones because you have, quote, satisfied your search. You found right. something. And so it, it happens. It's not, uh, it's a, a kind of error that's made in radiology. It, you know, happens periodically. It doesn't happen a whole lot, but, but it does yeah. happen. And what we found in this study was that when you're fatigued, you're more likely to make this error, to miss that second and or third, you know, fourth, whatever lesion, than when you are when you're fresh. When you're fresh, you're more likely to continue searching for additional findings after you find that first uh, abnormality yeah. in the image. But when you're fatigued, it's like, oh, I found something. Oh, good. Let's just go to the next case. Right. right. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm reading this correctly. Yeah, you say um, satisfaction of search reduces both uh, true positive and false positive responses, whereas fatigue reduces true positives more than false positives. Is there any any implications there, or just an observation? Uh, it's a sort of more of an yeah. observation. We'd have to do more study on it. Um, essentially, what it's saying is that you know in with satisfaction of search and fatigue, it, it kind of, it's a double whammy. You're, you're even more, more prone to miss additional lesions once you find the first yeah. one. Um, the interesting thing was that when you're fatigued, you, you make some more false positives, but really no more than in the tra traditional satisfaction of search situation. Okay, okay. Yeah, so I want to close with uh, another paper, optimizing ergonomics in breast imaging, where you're looking at uh, radiologists sitting in front of a workstation for long hours, 
uh, and uh, getting into uh, repetitive strain injuries and, and the computer vision syndrome. You want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, so, you know, we the mammographers um, are similar, of course, to any other radiologists, um, but there's also some differences in, in what they do. And uh, mammography, when you think of it, is the, the majority of, there's a lot, it's, it's a screening modality, first of all. Um, you know, so we're, we're screening women of, you know, all ages, uh, you know, annually, and the vast majority are normal. Mm -hmm. And so when the mammographers are reading the screening cases, and I, I separate that from the diagnostic cases because they, they're different, the screening cases, the majority of what you're going to see is normal. Yet you have to do the same thorough search as you would for an abnormal image because you don't know in advance, you know, whether the patient's normal or abnormal, where you're going to have a, a, a mass or a microcalcification right. or what. And having that majority of cases being normal mm -hmm. uh, is very different than, for example, uh, you know, going through chest x-rays or abdominal, where the likelihood of something being there is much, much greater. And so mammography is actually, I think, more fatiguing, mm. uh, perhaps, than some of these other modalities and um, types of imaging where um, there's more variety in things to yeah. find um, and there's more likelihood of finding things. So mammography in the screening situation, I don't want to say that it can be boring, but it, it's a lot more difficult sometimes, I think, and I think a lot of mammographers do as well, to kind of stay at that high level of motivation. I mean, they do get in this zone, but I think fatigue probably impacts them more than others. And so um, this study was looking at, uh, you know, sort of some of the, the, the general features of, you know, what is it about uh, mammography? And, you know, we just happen to use those as an example, but I mean, radiologists in, in general, um, they're sitting for a long time, they're staring at computers, they're in a relatively dark room, um, trying to go through these images and so on. And yes, it can lead to not only uh, computer vision syndrome, so the eyes obviously are going to be affected by all this, but your, 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 your back, your neck, uh, your, your, your uh, buttocks and hips just from sitting all day, um, plus uh, just sort of that mental fatigue hmm. from you know, staring at images all day and, you know, most of them are normal. And it, it's, it's just an overall uh, environment that can create a lot of fatigue. And so that particular study was looking at some of the contributing factors and what we could do to improve the situation from an ergonomic perspective yeah. to improve the work environment for radiologists that would help them avoid uh, some of this physical uh, and uh, cognitive fatigue. Yeah, it's so interesting. So you, you have looked at a lot of different uh, type of images, different type of processes. Would you say, Elizabeth, based on all your research, that the more uh, the chance of fatigue, the higher possibly the application of AI related technologies that might improve performance? That's what a lot of the AI developers are thinking, and I think that it 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 certainly does have potential to improve that. You know, if we can develop schemes that will eliminate 
some of the difficulty of some of these images for example you know if you could get an ai scheme that could effectively triage yeah. a lot of the normal mammograms or the normal chest x-rays that come through and do it at a rate that would be clinically acceptable and socially acceptable yeah. so you you know or you know take these images triage them out and then maybe the residents review them rather than the radiologist. And so what you leave for the radiologist are the more complex cases, the more interesting cases. Yeah. Um, and I think, yes, that definitely does have the potential uh, to eliminate some of the fatigue. But I think you've also got to be aware that that also changes things in terms of potential biases and expectations. So like in the mammography case, uh, let's say 80% of the cases in a screening situation um, are, are definitely normal. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you take in right now, the radiologist sees all these cases knowing that 80% are definitely normal and 20% I've got to concentrate on because a good percentage of those, you know, eight to 10% are going to be definitely abnormal. And then there's some, you know, those middle ones that you got to really yeah. look at. Now with AI, suppose the AI triages out that 80%. Mm -hmm. So now I'm left with that 20%. And now that 20% is 100% of what I'm looking yeah. at. I have dramatically changed the expectations because I changed the prevalence of disease. So the radiologist has to mm -hmm. readjust mm -hmm. now and say, okay, it's no longer, you know, 20 out of 100 that I've got to, you know, really concentrate on. I got to concentrate on all of these. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> And, you know, even if I've got AI that's going to help me with these, right. it's still going to, uh, you, you, you still have to readjust the way you think and your expectations and your reporting criterion, because it is a very different situation cognitively than it was compared to what we have now. Yeah, maybe one way to handle that might be to assign a score, which naturally happens in an AI system. So every time you pick up something from that red bucket, it also has an assigned score to it, you know, a probability of finding something, something in there. Uh, perhaps. The, yeah, those are things that people are looking yeah. at. And to be honest, I don't think we have enough data yet to know the best way yeah. to to do this triage or the indication of what the AI thinks. I mean, you know, should we put a big circle around what the AI thinks with the probability, hey, I think this, you know, the computer thinks this is 80% likely to be abnormal and I think it's gonna be a, a pneumonia. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I just don't think we, we have enough studies yet to know how the best way to incorporate AI into the workflow yeah. is going to be. Yeah. yeah, We need a lot more Yeah, study. the good thing is that the technology is improving. Um, you and others are doing research around this. I think, like you say, more research is needed, more studies are needed. So uh, so hopefully we'll get there. Uh, this has been great, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for spending time with me. And uh, thank you with all your research. Thank you so thank much. You. Bye.